Okay, are we ready? We are ready. Let's turn to Daniel in chapter 9. Daniel in chapter 9. Now, Daniel chapter 9 has 27 verses. Oftentimes, I find that much of the focus of Daniel chapter 9 has to do with the last few verses. Um, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through verse 27, which I think last time I counted is four verses. Yes, told you math was never my strong suit. But anyway, um, and we're going to deal with those verses because they are a very crucial part of future prophetic things that are yet to take place. But I don't know if you noted that uh, the other 21 or so verses in here, or the other at least 19 verses, are not concerned with so much uh, prophetic things, if you will, in that sense, but rather they are Daniel's prayer. And that that's recorded for us, what he prayed about. Matter of fact, if I um, were to ask you as a Christian, give me two things, you've got to reduce it down to two things that you think are crucial for your life and strength and health spiritually as a believer, tell me what you think those two things to be. What do you think one of those two things would be? Prayer. Oh, very good. Yes, okay. That was the easy one. Now, what do you think a second one might be? Scripture. Yes, okay. And so we come to the book of Daniel chapter 9, and you're going to find prayer, and you're going to find Daniel in the Scripture because he somehow had acquired or had access to the writings of Jeremiah, which he is investigating and reading, which led him in his prayer to ask God, for an understanding of these things. Now, I only say that from the practical side of things, that when you come to this section of, of Daniel, which definitely has to do with prophetic things, you'll notice, first of all, that Daniel involves himself with prayer and with the book or the books, the scriptures. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, and so now you see we've moved again out of the strict chronology in that sense, but it's in the son of Ahasuerus, the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, we won't take the necessary time to go back and see that, but two things. Number one, if we looked at the timeline of Daniel uh, and where he is found, much of his early life was probably spent influenced by the, the ministry of Jeremiah. We just recently did uh, the book of Jeremiah at our men's Bible study in January at Camp Horizon, and I can tell you that uh, probably the first time I've really given myself to an intensive study of the book itself. But there are a number of things that that are would stand out to me about the man Jeremiah particularly. You know, his ministry was not, I have to say it wasn't an easy one, to put it mildly. But imagine now, if I were to stand before you, I'm not going to do that, but if I were to stand before you today and say, you who are citizens of the United States of America, 
I'm going to tell you what God has to say to you. God has to say to you that you're going to be taken over by the by Communist Party of China. And when they come in to take you over, don't fight. Don't resist. Give yourselves over to them. And you'd be like, already have run me out on a rail, you know. Well, imagine Jeremiah, because the whole country which of which he was associated, being a Jew didn't just mean something that had to do with your nationality, but it did have a deep patriotic spirit that ran through it and a nationalistic spirit. And Jeremiah has to stand before this people and say, listen, the way of life that God has shown you is that when the Babylonians come in to take you, don't fight, don't resist, allow them to take you captive. They're going to desecrate your temple. They're going to take your women and children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is why Jeremiah faced, faced increasing hostility from his own countrymen, which grieved his heart. Do you know what happened in the end? He told the people, don't go down to Egypt and try to find help there and stay here or be carried off captive and submit and thrive over there. And lo and behold, he gets carried away captive into Egypt. To me, it's one of the most disappointing parts of the book in that sense, that everything that he stood for and preached against, eventually, in a sense, some of that happened to him. It happens. And yet, the book that was put together that he wrote, what a tremendous blessing that book has been to so many, so many wonderful promises that are given to us in that book as well. None the least of which is the fact that I'm sure Jeremiah could smile down to see, if he could, see Daniel reading his book and giving us a tremendous, and God giving us a tremendous prophetic application that flowed right from the very things that God had told Jeremiah to write at a simple level and which are expanded to a much greater level. So as he was reading the books, and the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, Lord, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him, to them that keep his commandments. Those people have sinned. We didn't. We have sinned. He owned the nation's sin, even as his own. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. And neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, princes, fathers, to all the people of the land, and so on. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belongs mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. Let me just jump forward uh, here for a moment and jump backward for a moment if I can. And I'm sure that will require an explanation. In chapter 4, if I had uh, that particular chart here, which I don't, you would see another parallel that you find in Scripture perhaps not just parallel, but by way of contrast. You remember in chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar was considering all the glory of Babylon, this great kingdom that I have built, and so on. We're in chapter 9. Daniel will begin to 
consider the desolations of his beloved city, the city Jerusalem. In chapter 4, God disciplines Nebuchadnezzar. It was a discipline that he deserved. In chapter 9, we read of Israel's continued sin and the reason for their discipline by God. In chapter 4, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar was punished for seven years and then restored. In chapter 9, we read that Jerusalem will be punished for 70 years and then restored. And as we get to the end of the chapter, we realize that that is expanded too. But that brings me back to the verse I just read in part or in whole. That you, Lord, our God, are a God of mercies and forgivenesses. And that number 70 also rings in my mind something else echoes of when Peter came to the Lord and said, Lord, if my brother sins, how many times do I forgive him? Seven times? I'll be magnanimous, Lord. No, 70 times seven. Is there any significance to that? And what happened with Jerusalem? And what we'll ultimately see the 70 times seven? I leave that to you to decide. So we have Daniel's prayer and his confession, and then his petition beginning in verse 16. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. And you notice again here, by faith, Daniel still recognizes what Jerusalem stood for, even though in the day in which he's writing, it had been decimated. Perhaps there had been an initial uh, uh, foray back into the land by the exiles in the post-captivity period had begun. But be that as it may, Jerusalem was not what it had been and not what God said it ultimately would be at this stage. But he recognizes God's purpose for that city. And so much of what follows in his prayer and in the answer to prayer will have to do specifically, and it's a critical thing to see, with his city, his people, and that is Jerusalem, and that is the Jewish people. And so um, as he continues on and asks for forgiveness, he says, Lord, in verse 16, not just for thine own sake, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. God's purpose leads to a question, a big one, that divides schools of prophetic interpretation uh, in, a, in a wide sort of way, in a wide swath, do you believe that God has a purpose and a future for a literal Jewish people and a literal city of Jerusalem in the coming prophetic future? Or have all those promises just been absorbed by the church and the curses left to the nation and nothing for them in the future. Because what you believe about that one point is the line of demarcation when it comes to interpretive schools, interpretive approach to Bible prophecy. So I will stand before you now. And while I have said there are some things, many things in the scripture that I do not understand completely, 
or even in measure some, I stand unapologetically to say that I believe that the promises that God made to that nation of Israel will yet be fulfilled in a coming day and in a literal way. And Jerusalem city, if for no other reason than this one, that the very city from which Jesus Christ was rejected and crucified will one day have to own him as the rightful king. and He will rule and reign from the very place of his rejection, the rightful king, in a coming day. Now, if you find yourself in disagreement with that, and you're a believer in Christ, we are commanded to love one another. <laughs> and believe me, it'll be just as hard for me to love you as it will you me if our views diverge at that particular point. We are not commanded to be hostile to one another, nor consider one another to be a heretic because of different views in prophetic things. And like I have said for many years, you'll just have to realize when you get to heaven that you were wrong and I was right, okay? Joking. <laughs> but it is important to note that that is, one, that is the, I would say, the big line of demarcation uh, that in, in how you interpret Scripture. Is there a future for the nation of Israel? Is there any distinction between the nation of Israel and the church, which is the body of Christ? And you will find that much of this prophecy, as I said, that Daniel um, is involved with here has to do with his people and his city and so on. And so in verse 20, while he was speaking and praying and confessing his sin, the sin of his people Israel, presenting a supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me. And, and let me just say at one point, as I said, Daniel owned still the city of Jerusalem and what it stood for. He knew that this was the time of the evening oblation. He recognized the sacrifices that the Levitical uh, uh, law required and that God himself required, even if they weren't being done at that time. Hope that, that clicks. And so he, he talked with me and said, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. How would you like to hear from a messenger from heaven that you are greatly beloved? Now that's a calm assurance for the soul, even one that's an old man now and in the midst of trouble and tribulation and everything else and everything that he once stood for and hoped in had been, you know, decimated and perhaps he himself had become had to become a eunuch, who knows? And yet the voice from heaven that could communicate to him, you are greatly beloved. Now, it is wonderful to be with you folks. Uh, I love this place. Uh, I talk about you folks in a good way. Uh, in other places I go for a number of reasons. I've always enjoyed the times here and the fellowship with you. And one thing I look forward, if the Lord hasn't come uh, this evening, is tomorrow we can gather together and remember the Lord Jesus together. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And you know, one of the things that we do in doing that is you and I take that loaf and take that cup. We're reminded from heaven 
that the Lord Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. How wonderful to start our week, because I know we call it the weekend. That's not what God calls it. He calls tomorrow the first day of the week. And how great to begin our week with a heavenly reminder that we are loved. And the very expression of it will be on that table before us symbolically. That he gave his body and he gave his blood. That's how much he loved you and me. Wonderful. And so, O man, greatly beloved, I'm come forth now to give you understanding. Where Daniel had been considering the 70 years, which would be accomplished for the restoration of Jerusalem, he's now given insight into something far bigger than just a mere 70 years. Uh, I don't want to bore you with the details of language. I would like to give you a couple of cross-references to look up on your own. But Genesis chapter 29, verses 27 through 30, you'll see there that week is used for years. I believe it's there said to Jacob, fulfill her week. And it ended up being seven years, at least the first time, did you see? And another on top. So the word heptad in the Hebrew is a word that can mean 70 70s of whatever, or sevens, sevens of some kind. So 70 weeks, 70 periods of seven are determined upon your people, upon thy holy city, and you notice that if you go back to verse 2, it was years that Daniel was concerned with because it had to do with the 70 years. So he's wondering how many years. So there's two levels here, which is not uncommon in Scripture. Yes, Daniel, 70 years is what Jeremiah said. The city of Jerusalem will be restored, etc., etc. But beyond that, 70 times 7 are determined upon your people. And this is what will be accomplished. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. And you, you just pause there for a moment and say, no, wait a minute. <laughs> Whatever happened when those Jews went back in their little migration of 50,000 or so, you know, during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and so on, well, I don't remember that bringing in everlasting righteousness. I don't remember it being the finishing of accomplishing of sins. Anyway, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks or sixty-nine weeks. And the street shall be built again in the wall even in troublous times. And after those 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but notice this very carefully, not in the last week. Okay? And then the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city, the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood unto the end of the war. Desolations are determined. He'll confirm the covenant for the many for one week. In the midst of the week, he'll cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease for the overspreading of abominations shall make it desolate. The abomination of desolation, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So with that in mind, sometimes it is helpful, isn't it, to have a bit of a visual of that. 
And once again, our highly skilled technical department will aid me in this. This is a basic outline of what you have in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9. Sorry, Jeff. I almost played the symbols there, hi-hat or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> uh, of, of what's given to Daniel in the prophecy and a few additions here by way of help for interpretation. So there were 62 weeks and 7 weeks or 49 years and 430 years uh, that encompassed this particular period up to the time when Messiah would be cut off. Again, math not being my strong suit, but it being mm, the other J, uh, Jason, no, James. Jason was right? It is Jason. Oh, yes, okay. So he is the math guy here, you see. And Josh, you may be too. I, oh, both. Oh, we're in trouble. Okay, I think 4 and 34 and 49 is 483. Just nod and say yes, yes, okay, no. <laughs> 483. 69 times 7, 483. So, uh, 483 years will take place until the time of the Messiah shall be cut off. Then he'll be cut off, but not during this last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. It will begin with the issuing of a decree to go forth and to rebuild Jerusalem, and very important, and the wall which happened somewhere around 442-445 B.C. when a decree was issued. Uh, you read about it in the book of Nehemiah. There were various decrees that were issued, but very precisely when you read in the beginning of Nehemiah, you will see that that command was for the Jews to go forth, rebuild the city and the wall. That gives us the beginning of the time clock that begins to tick here that takes us up to the coming of the Messiah. Now, the first one to very precisely do the uh, math on this, if you will, was a man who lived a couple of centuries ago now named Sir Robert Anderson. And Sir Robert Anderson wrote a famous book, at least it was famous at one time, called The Coming Prince. He was the first one to take the mathematics of the weeks and make the adjustments that were necessary. Because, see, we have a problem with calendars in this sense. You will know that we follow, I think it's called a Julian calendar, 365 and a quarter days or something like that with a, an adjustment for leap year and so on. The Jews didn't follow that kind of a calendar. The Jews followed a lunar calendar, 30 days in the lunar cycle. So in a Jewish calendar, you only had 360 days. Now, it amazes me I'm even able to say this because, as I said, math is not my strong suit. So what you would have to do over a period of 483 years is do the adjustments that would be necessary for an actual calendar year with the leap years put in and all of that. Sir Robert Anderson was a very interesting man. Sir Robert Anderson was a chief investigator at Scotland Yard, and it said that while Arthur Conan Doyle was talking about the exploits of Sherlock Holmes, it was Sir Robert Anderson who was really solving the crimes around the city of London and so on. But he was a remarkable Bible scholar. And so he wrote that book and was, like I say, the first one in modern history, so to speak, to do all of the detailed calculations. Why am I telling you that? Do you know that the Jews, had they studied their own writings, could have predicted almost to the month the time that their Messiah would come? 
that God had given it to them specifically in this prophecy of Daniel. And all they had to do was begin to count. It, was an, it, it is another one of the identifying markers. God uses identifying markers. Why does he do that? Many have come claiming to be a Messiah of sorts, haven't they? As a matter of fact, one of the things that I passed over in that book of the Revelation in chapter 13 is the rise of the second beast out of the earth. And the first thing that John notices is he looks at him. And he looked, he looked like a lamb. Imagine that. One rising who looked like a lamb. But he wasn't the lamb, was he? Oh, far from it. How did John know he wasn't? Well, he looked like a lamb. But if you listened, he had the voice of the dragon. Always want to know what God's word says. The Lord Jesus said himself, many will come in my name. And they'll say, Lord, in your name, did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many powerful miracles? In the name of Jesus. <laughs> He'll say, I never knew you. Doesn't mean every one of them is a fake. But it means you've got to be careful about what you see. You want to match what it says in the scripture. Because he's going to say to them, you are workers of iniquity. Even if you did it, especially if you did it in my name, because you deceive people. So, many false Christs have arisen. The Lord said many more would. So he's given us markers. We could know the timing of the coming of the Messiah. We could know the city where he was going to be born. And so many other things about his life and his death and his resurrection, all of this that the scripture pointed to, so that it would be, number one, impossible for anybody but the true Messiah to fulfill all of those things in the exact timing. And that when he did do those things, you could point and see, say, see, you were told. God told you it was going to happen. He even told you when it was going to happen. And so that's the basic outline of Daniel's prophecy. Now, let's think a little forward, if we might. So the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, concerning the 70 weeks, 483 years until Messiah is cut off. That's a definite period of time that the Old Testament told us about. Seven years left. It is stated in three different ways, at least in the book of Revelation, so that you can't miss it. I have my math helpers here with me, see? My math tutors. <laughs> so it's stated this way, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, or a time, times, and a half time, which is three and a half. Now, if I just said to you three and a half, a logical question might be, three and a half of what? Thank you. Yes, seven, you see. And there are seven years that are described for the total time of that period of tribulation. So watch. This 483 years takes us up until the time Messiah's cut off, but he's not cut off in the seven years. He's cut off after the 69 or the 483 years. That's seen in the Old Testament. It's a total of 490 years. There's seven years left. That also is seen in the Old Testament. What was not seen is this period of time in which we find ourselves living, 
Because as Ephesians tells us, it was a mystery that was hidden in God and could not be known until God chose to reveal it. It is the age in which we find ourselves living, which is an undated period of time not seen in the Old Testament. How long will it go on? We don't know. It seems like it's not going to be much longer, doesn't it? But we don't know because it's not recorded in Old Testament how long this current church age will continue. And so the critical nature of Daniel's prophecy, because when you read about what will take place during that time, and when you read about the one who ultimately will come, who's been prefigured by these various prototypes of which we've been thinking, Antiochus, Epiphanes, the little horn, and so on, that after Messiah is cut off, the people will come, there'll be these desolations, there'll be that one remaining week, and the confirming of a covenant that will inaugurate that week, a man will arise who will be able to make peace in the Middle East, or so it'll seem for a period of time. Who could do that? I mean, even Trump came further than perhaps anybody else, President Trump. But how long will that last, see? And how far did it go? And so he'll inaugurate that covenant and will cause ultimately that which we saw in the book of the Revelation, the abomination of desolation, not now just a statue to Zeus or Jupiter, not now just the blood of a pig placed on a Jewish altar, but a man who stands in the temple of God and demands that the world worships him as God and that none can buy or sell unless they receive the mark in their forehead or in their hand. And so what a significant prophecy we find here in the book of Daniel. And uh, how significant when it comes to thinking about the future. You might say, so what? Number one, it is a tremendous uh, encouragement to know the accuracy of the Word of God, isn't it? To see how these things, we can look back now and see much of it already fulfilled. Number two, it is a warning, isn't it? To be ready. There's a great irony to me in the book of Daniel, and we'll get to a bit of this, Lord willing, tomorrow in chapters 10 through 12, which, as I said, I'll take as a unit. But Babylon is one of those places in Scripture that is, um, you can go off of that if you like, uh, that is called by various names in Scripture. Sometimes it's the land of the Ur and the Chaldees. Uh, Sometimes it's referred to as Mesopotamia. One of the ways I think of it is as the land of the Tigris, and the Euphrates, or is the river Hittichel, as it's called in Daniel. Modern-day Iraq. What's significant about that? Well, it's the place where it all began, if you remember. Go back to the book of Genesis. And read about the beginning, the Tigris that flowed from there. Not only is it the place where it all began, when God called a man to ultimately siphon off Uh, from the rest of the world, a nation that would ultimately produce the Messiah to bless the rest of the world, a man called Abram. He specifically is said uh, this of him in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, that the God of glory appeared to Abram while he was in the land of Mesopotamia. Now legend says, and this is just legend, that Abraham worked in his father's idol shop 
in Ur of the Chaldees, where they made and sold idol images. One day as Abraham, Abram, as the legend goes, looked around the idol shop, he thought of the frustration of all of it, and he destroyed all of the idols that were in the idol shop of his father. His father came in, was furious. What's the cause of all this? Well, now, Abram had destroyed all the idols except one. He said, ask him. The one remaining idol. You don't get it? <laughs> Come on, wake up, folks. I know it's afternoon, but really. <laughs> I thought that was a good one. Anyway, <laughs> what do I know? Uh, Florida man. But anyway, um, the folly of idolatry. What was it that drew Abram's heart? The God of glory appeared to him. Even in Abram's day, the land of Ur was an advanced civilization. But there was something that attracted his heart and drew him. And the writer of the Hebrews will say it this way. He looked for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. Abraham saw something beyond even the land of so-called Palestine, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. He looked for something greater to come, a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. And when you come to this book of Daniel, in one sense, it is the tale of two cities. On the one hand, there was all the glory, which is what Nebuchadnezzar said, didn't he? Look at the glory of great Babylon that I have built. Look at this advanced civilization and all of the advances in science and technology and culture and everything else. And another city, the city of Jerusalem. Big question, isn't it? If that city was the city of God and of the covenant and of God's people, and the place where God would establish his name, the city of the great king. Look at it. <laughs> Laid to the ground by a pagan king. God would one day restore that city, wouldn't he? And yet, even above that, a glory that would exceed even the city of Jerusalem on this planet, an eternal dwelling place for the people of God. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the only inheritance you have is what you have down here on this earth? And what you work for and what you scrape for and what you scrap for, important as life is and work and school and all those things? Or do you believe that in spite of what we might see with our eyes, think of what it was to Daniel to think about that city and how it had been decimated and desecrated and then look forward to the future of what yet was going to happen in the years following. But believing that ultimately God had a purpose, an eternal purpose, he would bring it to pass. I think I could speak for you. You do believe that, don't you? And it is something that keeps you going. To know that this life is not all there is. It's not that we just stick our head in the sand and, and, and we're not realist about the struggles of life and the hardships and, and all the rest. But oh, I'll tell you, if there's one thing that this produced in Daniel, besides his consternation, it was a hope that God would fulfill his word. That whatever the present said, it didn't indicate what the future would be. Hope. 
And I'm going to tell you, we live in a world, just walk around, nothing against you folks, it's everywhere. When I walk down the streets, in the stores, in the places where we are, and I see a world filled with people with masks, and I think, you know what's driving this? I know you've got your own opinion, but I'm going to tell you mine. In part, it's a very real thing. It's the fear of death. There's a reality, isn't there? You know, I know the statistics. I know with this pandemic, 99.5% of the people will never die from it. Then all of a sudden, the statistics become a name, like Randy Amos, or Barry Kirk, or Joe DePino. People you know that either die or almost die. My own daughter. And then you're saying, it's not just a statistic anymore, is it? The fear of death is, is real. But I'll tell you, the one who came to this planet and entered into the very domain of the enemy himself on his own turf, according to Hebrews 2, defeated him who held that power of the fear of death that kept people in bondage. And I say that to say, listen, with all that we have to do, let's not forget this is a time of opportunity for us. It is a time to point people to the fact that, yes, take precautions, do what you must, be wise, be sensible. But listen, there's something beyond this life. And if perchance something drastically happens to you, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Do you have a hope that goes beyond this life and planet and all that this is? A glory. That's what awaits us. Glory. See, what a wonderful thing to have that hope. Now, how you communicate that won't be the way that I communicate that. May God give you help to communicate that message to a world around us that either doesn't have hope or like Babylon had a false sense of security hoping in what the government there could do and provide for them. Very real and applicable, isn't it, to where we live? Um, can I be a bit presumptuous? Would you come up and close in prayer, brother? Yeah, you. Yeah, you, Bartholomew, the guy with two first names. <laughs> we'll begin at 10 o'clock. I was trying to avoid that, but okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you want to join us tomorrow morning, we'll start at 10 o'clock. Just arrive early enough to grab a seat. When this room fills up, we're gonna have, we are gonna have extra seating and microphones and TVs downstairs as well. So we can we have capacity uh, for anybody who wants to join us. So if you're visiting today, you're more than welcome to join us tomorrow for the Lord's Supper at 10 o'clock. Uh, but let's commit uh, this day and uh, these words uh, to the Lord. Uh, Father, again, we thank you again um, for the amazing uh, book that you have given us um, that is clearly by you. No man could write these things. Not in totality. Any man can make up some story, but the the whole of of the Bible, the mass of Scripture that we spend a lifetime trying to understand um, and take all in um, is really amazing. And so we are just in awe and thankful um, that in, in the things that are revealed and in the things that are, are mysteries and things that are struggles, there's one thing that is clear. Uh, you love us and you gave your son to die for us. And he reigns uh, now and forevermore. And uh, we're so thankful for the free gift of salvation in Christ that you've made so obviously clear to us in your book. That is one thing that is not hard to understand. Amen. And we thank you for that. And as we thank you for our Savior and our risen King, 
and, and uh, we contemplate these mysteries and these revelations. We thank you again. We ask you to bless the, the word to our heart that be written like tablets of stone so we don't forget these things. And uh, may we remember the time that we have now and how important it is um, to let others know that this time may be short. It's always short in your eyes, Lord, but uh, to us, we really don't know. So just help us to cherish the time and, and let others know the love of God and the free gift uh, that they have in Christ. So again, thank you for this time and for these words. And we exalt you and praise you and thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Lord bless you today. Thank you for coming. Thank you.